electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Better news on the inflation front has yields down and stocks up. Well, at least they were. And in fact, David Zervos is here to say the worst is over and the Fed's credibility remains intact. He'll be right here on set to make his case. Plus, recession. What recession? Academy Sports and Outdoors stock up double digits on earnings today. The company's expansion plans in full swing. The CEO is here to tell us why. Meanwhile, the Amazon trade is falling apart. It's the only mega cap stock negative over the past month, and it's lost nearly half its value this year. So is it an opportunity to get in? We'll have a good old bull and bear debate. We begin with the markets, though, and Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Dom. We're going to call it mixed, and it's been pretty range-bound. And at this point, the bulls will take it because it's been a pretty deep slide. Four-day losing streak could be five today if the S&P goes lower again. During that span, the S&P's lost roughly 4% of its value. I'll start there because we're down just one point, so pretty much flat on the session. 39.40 the last trade there. Again, for the context on trading range, at the highs of the session, up 16 points, down 19 points at the lows. So just about in between that trading range. But again, after the slide that we've seen, some of the bulls will take that as a win. The Dow Industrial is up about 42 points, one-tenth of 1%, 33.639 the Nasdaq Composite. Now below the 11,000 mark, 10,980, down about one-third of 1%, the real decliner there. Now, this is all happening despite a drop in interest rates overall. Kelly mentioned some of that softer economic data that we saw earlier on this morning. I'm sure you'll talk about it a little bit later on. But the 10-year Treasury note yield currently sits at 3.44%. The reason why it's important, you got to go all the way back to September to see the last time we've hit this low. So is this a peak in inflation and rates for the time being? We'll see. But remember, at these levels here... 4.33% was the high for this cycle. Last year, we got down as low as 1.37%. That's been the range in that 10-year Treasury note yield trade throughout the course of the year. One other place to watch with regard to yields is the difference between long and short-term rates. We'll look specifically at the two-year, 10-year spread right now at minus 83 inverted basis points, or 0.83%. That would put it at the lowest level in terms of inversion. The most inverted this yield curve has been since 1981. That's something a lot of traders are paying attention to. But again, a debate rages about just how telling of an economic indicator this is. It has been reliable in the past. Could it be so in the future? And then one thing that lower rates has done, Kelly, is propped up a little bit of the housing trade. Right now, we've got some micro and macroeconomic factors driving the green that you're seeing in home builder stocks. Toll Brothers on the heels of earnings, better than expected, up about 8%. A carryover effect for Lennar, KB Home, Pulte Group. You can see all up 3 to 4% there. And Lowe's, by the way, home improvement. I'm throwing this in there because they came out with news this morning reaffirming their full-year forecast for profits and revenues and adding $15 billion to a stock buyback program that already had $6.5 billion left on it from before. So that bit of news, micro and macro powering that housing trade. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. Now, 18 days until Christmas, and most of the country's in a pretty grinchy mood about the economy. Steve Leisman is here with CNBC's latest All-America Economic Survey. 
Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, the CNBC All-America Economic Survey. You can see we have our superhero shield logo here for our survey here. Uh, 15 years we've been doing this, folks, uh, beginning on the holiday in 2007. What we found is that Americans are in a foul mood heading into the holiday buying season, and we'll see how much that actually affects the buying. Take a look at when we ask people, is the economy fair or poor? 85% say it is fair or poor. That's the second highest we've had on our survey here. And then only 14% say it's excellent, good. Uh, and, and by the way, these are numbers that are even worse than we saw back in the financial crisis. And you, we'll show you in a second why and where that comes from. Mostly it comes from inflation. Looking at expectations for the economy, not a whole lot better. Take a look compared to June 2008. Those who say it's going to get better, uh, just a little bit more than uh, uh, 2008. But those who say it's going to get worse actually equal to or higher than within the margin of error of the poll, 44% saying they expect the economy to get worse compared to 43% back when we are in the middle of the great financial crisis. Moving on, looking at recession expectations, I want to show you the detail on this. 56% say it will be. 22% are optimistic it won't happen. 9% think we're already there and 13% are smart enough to be not sure, which is where I am as well. I want to show you one other thing. Look, at, we call this the consumer barometer from this survey. Those who expect inflation to increase near an all-time high of 70%. A good time to invest in stocks, 26%, one of the lowest we've come up with. Will your home values decrease 19%, one of the higher levels in the survey? This is a good one here. Wages to rise 39% and fear of losing a job 17%. That could impact spending. We, the overall uh, survey, Kelly, shows that uh, Americans uh, plan to spend about 10% less than they did last year. But I will say, importantly, this sentiment comes up against the idea that there are now 4.3 million more Americans employed this holiday season than last holiday season. When did you get these responses? Like the last week or we do the them month? Or? Classically, right after uh, Thanksgiving. Okay. So the 26th through the 30th is so we're always is, in the field in the, the Friday through, sat, through through Sunday or Monday after Which is impressive. So this is with gas prices down, some food prices down, and still let, let's continue the conversation. We're going to dive a little deeper into the economy with our next guest, who thinks the worst is over, Grinches, and that things are looking up. Let's bring in David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. Welcome. Good to be here, Kelly. This is fun. Welcome it's fun to, to have too. everybody here. Thank you. So, But do you take my point, Dave, that Steve is getting these readings, which are horrendous, at a time when we've actually seen the economy improve over the past couple months, at least on in terms of price pressures? I mean, there's been a, a theme throughout all of this that the consumer confidence surveys, University of Michigan and the conference board have all been really bad. I mean, they have not, you know, consumers have been unhappy for a while. So I don't think it's as surprising to me that, that Steve gets that data. There's a lot of frustration out there. COVID brought a lot of angst, the reopening difficulties in logistics. Um, I, I thought the job stuff was kind of interesting, though, that people really don't see the risk of losing their jobs at all, which uh, that was your silver lining. I, I have, yeah. I've been surprised as we've been doing all of this stuff um, that the, ex the low unemployment rate and the good job market has not played a bigger role in people's attitudes towards the economy. Right. It's inflation trumps everything. Yes. Um, and I guess if you make a misery index, it doesn't matter how you get to double digits. Yeah. You can get there with the inflation numbers and the unemployment rate or just the unemployment rate back in the 80s. So why is it, Dave, are we correctly characterizing your views that you actually think things might be better next year than most Americans and most uh, people in the markets right now think? Well, I mean, 
Better is you know relative. Let, let's talk about better markets. Are we going to have better markets? I think I think you know this year was a pretty tumultuous period for a lot of people in markets, especially in certain sectors, tech obviously. But we've got 450 basis points as of next week of tightening uh, in the in the Fed funds rate. We're going to have I think 400 billion of QT uh, now and 500 billion by the end of the year. There's a significant amount of uh, tightening that's yeah. been put into this marketplace, and I think. The market keyed off of Jay's last speech at Brookings and realizes this is going to slow down and they're going to they're going to not necessarily pause, but really slow it into Q1. And eventually we're going to just take a break from this breakneck pace of tightening. And I think that's a relief for markets. Will the economy you know, follow suit? It's 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 more difficult to tell. But the inflation data do look like they're coming back down a little bit. And there was some good numbers today, right? I, I don't think people are talking enough about it. Um, and I know Kelly will because uh, she's one of the few people around here who's really focused on it. This unit labor cost number. And I emphasize it not only because it's an important number, but Powell has made it to an important number. It was the spike in unit labor cost that he made a big point of saying uh, had kind of freaked him out a little bit. There's labor productivity. I'll come back to that in a second, guys. I don't know if you have that second chart. I didn't and ask for it. And let's remind people, unit labor costs is wages and benefits, Wages right? and this benefits together sum... relative to your output, right? Yeah. So that's a key thing. When that thing was up near 8.5%, it was a real reason to freak, so to speak. Um, at now that it's down to 2.4%, lower than expectations, look... If you could bring the labor productivity chart up again, I think we made a mistake, which is uh, there's the unit labor cost one. You can see that's well down. We had this surge in productivity that resulted from the fact that we had let go. All these people had left their jobs. We kept output up pretty high where it was. People came back to work and it fell. And people want to make these grand pronouncements or, or conclusions about the economy right. from the cyclical nature of a COVID-driven productivity change. And I'm not ready to do that. I'm, like I said, I'm in the not sure camp because I want to know <laughs> what the real productivity trend is. And we want to be very careful to kind of separate this up and down business uh, in the economy. Let's bring it back to what Dom was talking about, though, Dave. The yield curve inversion, one of the worst it's ever been. Look at 10s, 1s, 11 previous times it's inverted. 10 of them have been recession. The 11th, the Fed still had to cut. I mean, why shouldn't we take it as baked in at this point that we're going to be in a recession sometime next year? Remember, we started this year with two consecutive quarters of negative real growth as parts of the curve were looking like they were going to invert. Um, We may very well get a couple more quarters of negative real growth. I think that's certainly plausible. The interesting bit is we have very high nominal growth, so it's not a typical recession where we have deflation risks. We have inflation risks. That's very different for markets, something we've been writing a lot about over the course of this year. And that can prop up earnings, maybe? And that props up earnings. That props up valuations. The Buffett statistic, which is total market cap divided by nominal GDP, looks better when high nominal GDP is there. But I, I I don't think we should get caught up in the recession really brings about some sort of major catastrophe for markets. The Fed probably needed to engineer a lot of this aggregate demand slowdown to anchor inflation expectations. They've done it. Everything suggests to me their credibility is actually near an all-time high, uh, not low like many of, of the guests that come on here suggest. I think the, the, curves, the curve in particular is very suggestive that the, the Fed has this under control. But do, so what does it have to do then? Because we talk to people who think they need to slam the brakes now and then others like Aneta Markowska, your yeah, colleague, colleague actually, yeah. who's, who's done such good work on the labor market and, and says we're going to see a lot of wage pressures into next year and they can't pull back here without having a persistent inflation problem. So I think they're going to try very hard not to declare victory early. I mean, they've said that. Jay's looked back at the 70s, the mistakes of Arthur Burns, I'm, and he's not going to do that. That is 
His number one goal is to not go down in the history books as the guy who blew 40 years of right. inflation fighting, credibility rebuild after Bill Martin and Arthur Burns blew it up in the late 60s and 70s. So I, I don't think he's going to declare any early victories. And we're not that optimistic for the real sort of big upside in, in equities next year. There could be a grind higher. I think the story where we're leaning more toward is credit markets. There's a mm. lot of really, really interesting stories that have come up in credit. The high, with high yields offering opportunities? Absolutely. You know, single B, double B credits in the low teens. These are very interesting. Low very teens. Inter- low teens. <laughs> wow. Low so basically, teens. if you think the economy isn't going to completely fall apart, the, some of these companies, you How think. much of that low teens is credit risk? And it's all credit bank, yeah. it's all credit lot, risk, Well, it's right? not all credit risk. We've but got 4%, percent, yeah, you've yeah. Got 4% yeah. yields in right, treasuries, right. give or take, 3 to 4, depending on where you are on the curve. But, but Steve, the, the most important point is we have a consumer that's pretty strong. We have a labor market that's pretty strong. It's hard to see businesses going out of business when people are buying their stuff. Even if their margins and their earnings might be coming down a little bit, it's a healthier time for a lot of businesses. And, again, I, I want to reiterate, I think if you're going to take equity risk, you better have equity returns. Hmm. And if the Fed's going to kind of sit on top of you and try to drive inflation down, you're not going to get equity returns. Mm-hmm. They're going to use opportunities of strength in the market to be a little bit more hawkish. So I don't see why you take equity. <laughs> I'd rather be lower on the capital structure mm-hmm. in, the, in the fixed income space where I'm you know, not taking equity risk. It's I'm the world doesn't fall apart risk. trade. The right. world doesn't, yeah. And I'm getting pretty good returns. Yeah. And, you know, some guys in our world, the hedge fund guys will lever that up and even potentially get equity returns out of it. But I think that's where I'm leaning more toward uh, in 2023, as opposed to my heartbreaking QT hats of 2022. <laughs> we got to get rid of the heartbreak. You know? <laughs> as a sell side guy, you can't go around with a, with with a, broken, a broken heart, heart. Yeah. hat for too long. Otherwise, people will... People will uh, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. I'll just make one very quick point, which is I think that there are two marks to look for. The first is you want to figure out how far the Fed is going. But once that is established... I think we can figure out better what's going to happen with the economy and how to figure out what to do with your money. One of the things I think that bothers businesses and investors right now is the uncertainty. When I look at the business roundtable and their plans for CapEx, their plans for hiring, they don't know about the effects, the lagged effects of of four 75 base point rate increases and how far the Fed's going to go. The, The fact is, in a dynamic economy such as the United States with dynamic businesses, If you tell them where the bogey is, they can hit it or they can avoid it or do what they need to do. Right now, we don't know. And that's a big font of the uncertainty for consumers and for businesses and investors. It's a great point. So then I'll give you the last word, Dave. Where do you think the Fed is going? If you had a room full of, you know, executives and people in charge of hiring decisions, where do you think they're going and what should these people do? I think they told you they have a lot in the hopper. They're going to have 450 base points in the hopper by, by next week. We're talking about fine-tuning now. Is it another 25? Is it another 75? I don't that's know. All that's you think kind of the point? number that we're talking about, I think. And then they're going to be able to sit back, watch. They have anchored long-run inflation. Let me interrupt, David, because they just had the Fed funds rate outlook on, which the 493 is where the market yeah. has put that up near yeah. 5%, which I think is in your I mean, zone of four and three quarters to five and a quarter. Yeah, I mean, it's right there in the middle of it, in fact. And I, I think that's a, a very fair representation of where we're going to end up. We're going to have a lot of QT next year, over a trillion dollars of QT. That's a lot of tightening. Could be as much as three 25 basis point moves, depending on how you look at it. So they've got a lot in the hopper. They got lags. They've got the cumulative effects of the tightening. Both were highlighted in the statement last time. And that's the first time they've highlighted it. So, But gonna, no recession? Look, I'm, I'm okay with the recession. You I'm can't okay be with okay the with the recession. You can't be okay with the recession. Two consecutive quarters of negative real growth with nominal growth at 5 or 6%. I'll take that all day. All right. 
Upside for credit, maybe Here's not so hat. much for equities in the broken heart. QT had his back. I did. Thank you very yes. much. Our Dave Zervos <laughs> and Steve Leisman. Uh, still coming up, if you think we're heading for a slowdown, you'll need some kind of strategy for stocks. And our trader has four names where she's finding value. We'll reveal them. Plus, some retailers are still insisting a recession isn't at hand. Academy Sports and Outdoors hitting an all-time high today. The CEO joins us next with a look at the consumer. The exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors are hitting an all-time high today after raising their profit outlook. Sales for the third quarter actually missed estimates, but e-commerce sales up double digits for the fifth straight quarter. The stock's been a bright spot in retail this year, up 25% while the broader market has been quite a challenge. Here first on CNBC is Ken Hicks. He's the chairman, CEO, and president of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Ken, welcome. It's great to see you again. Great to see you. How are you doing today? You know, we're good, but I'm sure you just maybe heard part of that discussion we were having and the uncertainty that executives sense about the economy. Do you share it? Yeah, there's no question the consumer's under pressure and there's a lot of uncertainty. That said, we are still seeing the consumer out there and they're buying. They're looking for a good value and value isn't just the lowest price. But uh, I'm also confident that and seen this through other uh, downturns, Christmas always comes. They the customer will still come out for the holiday. But what happens then? Some of the people in the market think, you know, we're going to hit a tough patch for stocks. We're going to hit that post-Christmas kind of reality check. Uh, the macro picture is slowing. The Fed's still a factor with higher rates. You know, you have to make plans. We talked about how many stores you guys are opening. How can you commit to opening 100 or whatever the number is stores when we could be going into a tough period for the consumer? Well, first of all, we're opening the stores for the long term, and we have significant opportunity. We're only in 18 states now, so we have a lot of opportunity to continue to grow. And our format has proven, as we've entered uh, some of the new states this year, that the customer wants us because we bring a great value. So even during down times, the value that we offer really is important to the customer, particularly when they're under pressure. Sure. So maybe you think, you know, it becomes a, a, a more attractive place to go. But, you know, people are still going to wonder about those shrinking wallets overall. Maybe you can tell us, you know, this Christmas, what is the impact inflation's having? We've talked in the past about if there's just certain product categories that are favorable to you right now. What would those be? The apparel, footwear are definitely ones that customers buying. Uh, our team sports, they still want to play the sports and and activities. Some of the bigger ticket merchandise is a little more challenging, but 
the exception to that is, is outdoor cooking. The customer is still looking to do fun things. Um, exercise equipment is a, is a tougher category because it's a, a bigger ticket. But overall, you know, they're, they're looking for value. They will buy something, even though it might be a stretch, if they see it meeting the need but providing value at the same time. Do you see a lingering effect in COVID? Obviously, the first time we really started to focus on your stock was when the outdoor boom happened because of COVID. Where are we now in terms of those consumer preferences? Pre-pandemic, uh, still in a pandemic mi- mindset, what do you see? I, I think we are firmly in, in post-pandemic. And, uh, you know, there are a number of businesses the customer still is active in, camping, as I mentioned, team sports. Uh, one that's fallen off is, is actually fishing. But overall, we are up over 30% from where we were pre-pandemic. So a lot of those categories that grew rapidly have maintained at a very high level. So grills are still strong, but fishing is not. Yes. Ken, thanks for your time today. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Sushi must be good. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, we appreciate it. Ken Hicks joining us from Academy Sports and Outdoors. Still ahead, Amazon falling to the lowest level since the start of the pandemic. It's down more than 50% from its record high. Should you buy it on the cheap or is it not cheap enough? We'll get into that next. Plus a behind the scenes look at the fall of Sam Bankman Freed, including the tale of a failed tie up with Taylor Swift. Kate Rooney is here with the story all you Swifties out there won't wanna miss. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Two of the major averages are higher right now. The Dow by 72, the S&P by only three, while the Nasdaq's down 17. Here are some of the movers this hour. Campbell Soup getting a nice bump after earnings, revenue, and profit margins beat estimates. Their organic growth above consensus, higher pricing offset lower volumes, a surprising 5.5% pop there. Airbnb, meanwhile, hitting an all-time low after a downgrade to underweight at Morgan Stanley. The analysts there citing slowing listings growth, occupancy headwinds, and lower room demand. That's only a 2% drop, and they have climbed back, but still enough for a low price there. Spirits maker Brown Foreman on pace for the biggest drop since March 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. The company missed profit and revenue estimates. They do say they expect consumer demand to grow into 2023 and that supply chain constraints are easing, but BFB is down almost 7%. And shares of Southwest are falling ahead of the investor day, as the company said it will resume its quarterly dividend after several years. Uh, Love is down about 3.5% as well. We will speak with CEO Bob Jordan about that in the next hour. Stay tuned. Let's get to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Kate. Hi there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. A majority of Supreme Court justices appear skeptical about issuing a broad ruling in a case on election rules. North Carolina Republicans who brought the case argue that the Constitution gives state legislatures nearly total control over congressional elections, including redistricting. Liberal Justice Kagan says eliminating court oversight would allow the, quote, most extreme forms of gerrymandering. 
And Peruvian President Pedro Castillo has dissolved the country's Congress. That was just hours before lawmakers were to debate impeaching him. Protests broke out on the streets of Peru's capital. Following that announcement, the head of Peru's constitutional court calls Castillo's decision a, quote, coup d'etat. And Vladimir Putin says Russia could be fighting in Ukraine for a long time. The Russian president said his special military operation in Ukraine could be a, quote, long process. Putin also said there was no need to mobilize more Russians to fight, despite growing concerns that more civilians will be drafted. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Ahead, whether or not we'll have a recession might still be up in the air, but some kind of slowdown seems likely. Our guest has four names to buy ahead of a downturn and why it's important to add risk to any long-term portfolios. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everybody. Blackstone's chair and CEO, Steve Schwartzman, addressing those recent concerns about the firm's REIT products. Let's get over to Dom Chu with the latest. Dom? All right, so Kelly, Schwartzman is making comments right now at the Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Services Conference. In those remarks, he addressed some of the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, or B-REIT, as it's known, and some of the concerns and headlines over the last couple of days of the firm putting up gates or halting some large withdrawals. The, the, this is what Schwartzman had to say at the conference, talking a little bit about aggressive Fed action starting to impact the economy. Also, that the consumers have a lot of income. Also, that if re- interest rates go down, real estate will be worth much more. Also, that people in the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust product are actually doing very well. Schwartzman, b product is some of the best work that we've done. Also, he finds concerns over the b product a bit baffling and that the redemptions from the fund came predominantly from Asia, and that Schwartzman says investors are very happy generally with this so-called B-REIT product. But again, those comments coming directly in in connection with those reports that Blackstone had so-called gates put up on some of these large real estate products that they have in order to limit the withdrawals to avoid fire sale conditions for assets for some of those investors who are still with the fund. So we'll continue to monitor these comments, but those headlines catching some attention here on Wall Street, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, that's exactly right. And it is sort of an important point to mention that they don't want to have to be forced sellers into a down real estate market. You know, there's big implications here, even if they're able to keep that fund, you know, from trading down too much. There's a lot of people on the residential and on the commercial side who are seeing big losses. Well, we're also seeing some interesting comments with regard to how they've protected and risk managed some of those assets. He basically says that they had a situation in place where they had bought a hedge or an insurance product on the real estate fund so that as interest rates go up, our investors in retail make more money. That's been generating what he says around $5 billion in profits on those interest rate hedges. So it wasn't just real estate. We were looking at other parts of the market as well. Yeah. So again, addressing some of those and how they've risk managed some of the downside of these real estate investments on rising rates, Kel. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. It has been a choppy day of trading. Meantime, with the averages trying for their first gains of the week, the Dow coming off a three-day losing streak. It's four for the S&P. And check out bond yields. The 10-year, three-month spread on pace for its widest inversion in, yes, 22 years. About 88 basis points. My next guest says we're definitely headed for an economic slowdown, but she's got four stocks to buy now if you want to hedge. Let's welcome in Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Great to see you again, Nancy. Welcome. Kelly, it's so good to have you back. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, I I love how you're always provocative. And to say, you know, listen, that we might be having a downturn, but that there's still stocks that you can and should buy now. Explain that to people who just heard Dave Zervo say he wouldn't really be in stocks for the next uh, near while. 
Yeah, well, most of us aren't aren't able to be all that nimble. And so what, what we do within our portfolios is try to reposition for what we expect in the next six to nine to 12 months. So one of the stocks I have for you is a, is a dividend payer. That, that's been a great place to be. We've been managing dividend growth portfolios since, dare I say, at 1984. Uh, and so we like that. I mean, that's this is not a fad for us. And AbbVie is a name that is yielding 3.6% growing the dividend at 17% annualized over the last five years, only trading at 13.8 times the S&P versus the, um, I'm sorry, 13.8 on a price earnings multiple versus the S&P at 17 times. And investors have been sitting on the sidelines worried about the Humira uh, off patent coming up, which we've known about for a very long time. The company's very confident they can replace those uh, earnings with uh, Skyreezy and Rinvogue, and they're looking for uh, to get approval for other indications for those names. Uh, and then you've got the aesthetics business, which has been um, a workhorse uh, after sure. the Allergan uh, transaction. So we like this name a lot. It's up 25% this year, but you shouldn't be afraid to step in here. You're getting paid. You can just sit back and clip the coupons, the dividends. You sure. So before we turn then to talk about Steel Dynamics and Raytheon, why ServiceNow is your fourth name. It surprises me a little bit. Why is this name up there? Well, I think they've um, been the most successful purveyors in the cloud this last year. Um, Bill McDermott is probably one of the best CEOs in corporate America. Hmm. He has argued that the secular tailwinds behind this company are much greater than the macro crosswinds. And they've delivered, you know, earnings and revenue growth in the 20% range. And they've been able to secure really big deals and keep 98% of their customers. Um, their unique application of data management on the cloud puts them in, a, in an area that allows companies to save money. They gave an example on the earnings call that uh, one, uh, one client is going to save $1 billion over the next 12 months just by employing uh, their their systems. And that's important when you're in a labor-constrained environment. Exactly, or you're looking for those cost cuts. Maybe it's a catalyst. I guess my final question, Nancy, and you must get this from people a lot who are concerned about the outlook and say, I don't want exposure to equities. I want to pull back here, maybe especially given their investment time horizon. Make your case as to why they shouldn't do that. Well, I, th I think to some extent they should. I mean, remember, and we probably don't remember, but in August of 2020, we were saying that bonds were riskier than stocks. Hmm. And so we moved our clients out of the, the fixed income market into some uh, commodities, also into an, we have an inflation strategy, uh, both of which have done much better than bonds. Now we've, uh, about four or five months ago, we started moving clients back into very short dated ladders in treasuries, munis, and corporates, depending on their risk profile. So you now have the opportunity to have a much more constructive allocation. But equities are going to have historically outperformed two-thirds of the time. So you never want to bet against them, particularly in a high inflationary environment. So one of the safest ways to be exposed is through dividend payers. And that just happens to be our specialty. But yeah. I, I don't think you want to shy away from equities at all. And the last thing I'll say, Kelly, is that institutional allocations to equities are below where they were in 2008. Hmm. And you've got very negative retail investors. So the odds of at the margin money moving back into equities is much greater than not. All right. She's good at what she does. <laughs> Nancy Tangler, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's great to see you again. You too. Still coming up, new details about the collapse of FTX and how Sam Bankman frieds management style factored into it. This as Bitcoin sinks back below 17,000 on pace for its worst year since 2018. We're back after this. 
As the fallout from FTX continues to unravel, new details are emerging on how Sam Bankman-Fried's management style precipitated the company's collapse. Kate Rooney, right here on set with more. What a story this is, oh, Kate. Kelly, I know. It's, it's been wild to follow, but we have been talking to about half a dozen people who worked closely with Bankman-Fried. They paint a very different picture than what a lot of people saw, saying that the FTX founder was not the easygoing CEO he portrays himself as publicly. That more laid-back persona has been on display on recent media appearances where he denied committing fraud and says he was unaware of a commingling of funds between FTX and Alameda. But people who worked with him describe a pattern of ignoring the advice of his top executives. Some employees say they felt intimidated into not speaking up and Bankman-Fried focused on expensive partnerships despite some telling CNBC that they begged him to pull back. While FTX insiders say some of the top brass questioned his decisions. He surrounded himself with a crew of what they called yes men and women. Two sources used the word insular to describe it. And one former top executive pointed to instances where Sam Bankman-Fried would chew out employees who disagreed with him in a way that deterred others from speaking up. We did get a comment from Bankman-Fried. He says he disagrees with the categorization of his leadership style. But Kelly, whether or not this was or Sam uh, was in total control of FTX's uh, company here and the operations is really going to be key in the bankruptcy and these criminal investigations going forward. How quickly forward. is that going to happen? Because so many people ask the question constantly, people in the crypto world, especially who get burned, why isn't he behind bars? Well, how long might this process all take? It could take years. If you look at Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos as uh, a recent example, the DOJ is now investigating what's going on here. So it will happen uh, with this bankruptcy proceeding we're seeing in Delaware, but it's not going to happen right away. They need to gather evidence. Meanwhile, what about the Taylor Swift connection? Did she dodge a bullet here? She appears to have dodged a bullet. So FTX and Taylor Swift, I'm told from th uh, three sources who were close to that deal, they were almost over the finish line on what was supposed to be a $100 million sponsorship. Wow. So they pulled, it didn't end up happening, but this was painted as an example from multiple sources and close th those that were close to the deal who said, it fits into a fact pattern of Sam Bankman-Fried saying, I'm going to steamroll this. I'm going for this deal, regardless of what you say. Some said that the company couldn't afford to do it. They weren't sure what they were getting here other than potential NFTs that they were launching. Huh. And it was an example. People say they begged him not to do it. Didn't end up happening. So Swift may have dodged something here. Did she get cold feet? Do we know why it didn't cross the finish line? A source told me that FTX was actually the one that pulled out. They described it as uh, walking away at the altar. Wow. Wow. And perhaps the best such uh, <laughs> exactly. type of occurrence that could have happened for her. Had no idea. Kate, thank you so much. Kate Rooney, we appreciate it. Thanks, Kel. Still ahead, it's not often that you say a stock is having its worst year in two decades, but it's the case for none other than Amazon this year. It's down 45%. It's barely off its 52-week low. Why has Wall Street lost confidence in the tech juggernaut? We've got a bull bear debate. There they are, next. Welcome back. Amazon may still be one of the most loved stocks. Wall Street analysts, with more than 80% of them, are still rating it a buy. But it's been an underperforming mega cap lately. In the last month, Meta, for instance, is up 17%. Alphabet's up 7%. Microsoft, too. Even Apple, a 1% gain. Amazon, down 3%, although that looks like up. And trading about 50% from its 52-week high. In fact, it's on pace for its worst year since 2000. It's breaking a seven-year win streak. 
is now an opportunity or not? We have a bull bear debate. Our bull is Arun Sundaram. He's an analyst at CFRA. He has a buy and a 152 price target. And our bear is the only analyst on the street, ladies and gentlemen, with a sell and an $80 price target, Stefan Slowinski of BNP Paribas. So welcome to both of you. Stefan, I'll begin with you. Are you a longtime bear on the stock or a recent one? So we initiated uh, with an underperformed recommendation, I believe it was back in March, beginning of this year, um, and we've kept it all the way through. We really have three main concerns here. First, we think the business model just struggles in an inflationary and a recessionary environment. And right now, it looks like we're finding ourselves in both. Companies much more capital intensive than it was in the past. CapEx was $10 billion in 2017. It's $60 billion this year. They have 1.7 million employees. Second thing is we still think consensus is expecting recovery way too quickly. Consensus expects free cash flow to go from minus 12 billion this year to positive 29 billion next year. That would almost be as much free cash flow as they generated in 2020 during their COVID peak. We think that's way too aggressive. We only expect about 12 billion of free cash flow next year. So we're about 60% below consensus still on free cash flow. Wow. Um, and then third on valuation. Even on those consensus numbers, the stock's trading on 37 times free cash flow for next year. We just still see better value in, in Microsoft on 22 times or Alphabet on 14 times free cash flow. So we're still comfortable with our underperform recommendation. All right, Arun, he makes a pretty compelling case. What do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, I mean, those are the concerns that we've been hearing uh, from investors really throughout for the for the for this entire year. You know, for us, you know, we see really, you know, 2000. 23 being the next phase for Amazon. And, and so what is the next phase? It's really a, it's really a multi-year turnaround for profits and margins, you know, especially as these capital investments are pulled back and, and costs are cut throughout the business. You know, this year we see Amazon generating about $12 billion of operating profit. You know, next year we see that nearly doubling to around $20 billion of operating profit. And, and there could be even more upside to this, to this, uh, to this profit estimate right now, especially if, Amazon decides to cut some of its ancillary businesses. You know, especially a lot of their businesses right now don't generate a profit. You know, we've heard reports of Amazon Alexa right. losing about $10 billion a year. Um, you have to realize Amazon makes major bets, uh, throwing a lot of money away, but making bets on, and some businesses may take off and some of these businesses may not take off. Um, but, you know, as these, as these businesses are cut, you know, that could potentially be uh, billions of dollars of incremental operating profit in 2023. So it's really less focused on the top line for 2023 and more focused on the bottom line. So profits and margins. And that's what we're optimistic about. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked to see it's a $10 billion hole for them, the Alexa business. But it's also interesting that your bull case rests on them cutting divisions and basically potentially cutting the investment that will pay off in future revenue and profit growth. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, there, there, there's many business streams that Amazon bets in. You know, they, you know, they're probably not going to cut everything. You know, they have to lay a foundation for future growth. So there's going to be some business streams that are going to be generating a loss next year, and, and they'll keep them. They'll be happy with that. But you know, this is a time where you know companies and investors want uh, to tighten their belt. Uh, it's, it's that kind of macro environment right now, and um, you know, most of the issues Amazon is, fa is facing is, is largely macro oriented. Yeah, and they're doing what they can to really control what they can, and, and that's right now is managing costs because, like I said, yeah, the top line growth it doesn't look good right now. The e-commerce business is slowing. It has been slowing for the past year. 
now we just started to see AWS growth really start to slow. So there are a lot of top line headwinds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that needs to that that doesn't mean that it has to flow into the bottom line. There are a lot of levers Amazon can pull to improve profits and margins next year. And maybe to put it differently, there's a lot of negativity priced in right now. Stefan, is the stock cheap? And would you change or become more bullish if they start slashing costs aggressively? Um, well, I'd say two things. First, you're right. They have been taking some action on the cost side. But when you look at the fourth quarter, Amazon's guidance um, implies that everything outside of AWS is still losing $3 billion. That's about $12 billion on an annual run rate basis. Consensus has them lowering that to about a $4 billion loss next year. So that's $8 billion of, of losses they need to cut out of the business. Keep in mind, the top line is now starting to deteriorate in terms of demand, which will make efficiency metrics uh, even more negative. So that's a bit of a headwind. Um, and the second thing I would highlight is AWS really pulled the valuation rug out of Amazon. AWS was, was sort of the, the pillar that investors would say, at least I know that I'm getting AWS for a certain valuation. Right. Yes, we've seen AWS a growth slow from 40% in Q4 of last year to 25% this year. But I would say more importantly, the AWS margins collapsed by 600 basis points last quarter. So all of a sudden, investors are wondering, what's the terminal margin for this business? And therefore, what's that valuation for AWS? And if we don't know what that is, we don't really know what the floor valuation is for Amazon. Hmm. That's a great point. As you said, for one of the stalwart places, uh, the bulls always have to go. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. To be continued. Thanks for your time. Arun Sundaram with CFRA and Stefan Slowinski with BNP Paribas. Still ahead, it's been a big week in the energy markets as EU, Russia sanctions and a price cap on Russian oil take effect. Brian Sullivan has had a front row seat and given us one to all of it. He's still live in the Netherlands with the latest on Europe's energy crisis. Brian? Yeah, everybody might be riding bikes soon here, Kelly. All right, so here's the thing. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about the pros and the cons of what Shell might consider the energy source of the future, and that is hydrogen, plus the personal stories. We've talked to a lot of people, some of the measures the governments here are asking people to do, and a very personal story from a taxi driver I had. All coming up right after the break here on The Exchange. That's next. Welcome back. There's been a lot of hype and a lot of hope surrounding hydrogen. Could it be the answer to Europe's energy crisis? For more, let's check in with Brian Sullivan. He's over in the Netherlands. Brian? Very appropriate we're talking about hydrogen because I, I'm getting two, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen right now. All of a sudden, H2O is coming out, and that's part of the story here. It's very plentiful. All right. Let's talk about hydrogen here in the Netherlands because Shell is investing billions of dollars in the thought that maybe this is Maybe not the fuel of the future, but maybe one of the fuels of the future as well. All right. You hear a lot about hydrogen. Some people love it. Some people don't. Let's talk about it. Okay. The types of hydrogen. Gray hydrogen. That's bad. That's like coal. That's coal burning emissions, et cetera. Blue hydrogen, which is can be coal-ish if you crush it. Natural gas, lower carbon intensity, but still not perfect. What Shell is trying to do is so-called green hydrogen, where they use wind power offshore, that electricity generated by wind then makes the hydrogen, which they can turn into feedstocks, fuels, etc. Now, man, people, you'd be shocked at how passionate people get over the issue of hydrogen, Kelly. It really is amazing. All right. So what do the bulls say? Well, they say it's plentiful. Guess what? It's in it's in water like this. We capture rain. I'm, I'm being hit by hydrogen right now. All right. It is low carbon. It may be depending on sort of which kind you do. Is it coal? Or is it wind-based as well? And the existing infrastructure pipelines, the only way to really transport it, that already exists. All right. 
So what about the bears? Well, the bears will say it's not energy. It's actually a form of storage. Doesn't provide energy itself. It's expensive, at least at the beginning of it. Shell's trying to bring the cost curve down as well. And it is hard to ship. You basically got to freeze it. You're not taking a shipload of hydrogen across the Atlantic Ocean. It's got to go through a pipeline. So a lot of debate, but still great day today. Learning all about hydrogen, renewables, et cetera, Kelly. And it's uh, hydrogen is all around us here in the Netherlands right now. It's amazing. I feel so bad that you were getting rained on, Bri. Uh, speaking of getting rained Whatever. on, the human element of this crisis, I mean, we're talking about people who are trying to keep their heating yeah. going. Who, I mean, tell, I, this has to me been the most fascinating part of your trip over there is what you're hearing about how people are managing. You know, listen, I mean, on a, okay, well, let's end on a serious note because it's a serious issue. And we've talked a lot about a big picture stuff last couple days. You know me, Kelly, I talked to everybody and um, a, a conversation I had with a, with a taxi driver in the Netherlands um, about how he and his family are dealing with higher costs and everything. Uh, I'm glad it's like raining because I don't want you to see, like it got me a little bit choked up. Here's a, here's a tiny little clip of, uh, of the interview and about how his family is, is dealing with it. Let's say I was working uh, five days, now I'm working six days. I'm sorry. Is anybody telling you it's gonna get any better or is it gonna get worse? Everybody is saying something, but uh, we don't know. We'll see. Yep. I have three daughters and my wife was working 16 years for a coffee company and 570 people are fired so uh, she doesn't work. So his wife got laid off. He's working six days. He then later told me, and I'll post the whole thing, Kelly, that he and his neighbor are going to alternate days heating their home. He'll go over to his neighbor's house one day. They'll go back. By the way, the German government is saying to people expect blackouts and power losses. They post tips and suggestions. This is publicly available on the German disaster relief website. They're saying things like wear sweaters, fine, whatever. Use a camping grill inside the house, although be careful when you do that. Oh, and by the way, keep coal and cash handy because you want coal for the fireplace and ATMs break down when there's no electricity, so keep a, a lot of cash on hand. The hum everybody I've talked to has been a little bit upset, a little depressed. They're not getting income gains like we are in the United States, Kelly. At, at all these big picture things, at the end of it, is generally a working class family just dealing with it. Yeah, and moving their, themselves to their neighbor's house as they trade off who's going to pay for heat, that is... That's an anecdote I'm not going to forget for a while, Brian. This is why you're the best. Thank you so much. We appreciate all the reporting you've been doing. Sure. Thank Brian you. Sullivan in the Netherlands as he wraps up his European trip for us. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.